Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. It's a beautiful summer's day here in Miami Beach. I'm here with Kristen Ashburn, uh, who is a globally renowned humanitarian and photographer. Uh, good to see you and meet you, Kristen. Nice to meet you. Uh, we've met through our most uncommon friend, That's <laughs> James Robinson, uh, who kindly set this up. And uh, you know, having seen your images and, and sort of the power of the, the, the places you've been, the stories you've told, it's a it was, it's, it's a great honor to meet you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> it's great to meet you. Uh, it's funny, I've interviewed many interesting people, technologists and even artists and sculptors, but you're my first photographer. So as someone who loves photography myself, I, I'm, I'm instantly jealous. <laughs> okay. When was that moment for you when, when, I guess, you picked up a camera and realized that this is something you were going to really do with your life? Mm. I studied photography in high school, actually, and I was part of a... And a, a visual a performing arts gifted program, and uh, and and that experience uh, really focused me in the sense that I knew heading out to to university that that's what I wanted to study. And I went to Rhode Island School of Design for a summer. Um, you know, sort of tried to figure out if that was exactly what I wanted to study for university, and it was. So I went to Rochester Institute of Technology for two years, and then I went to New York University to School of the Arts for two years, and and uh, and that did it. That was kind of. But, but, the you, beginning. but you actually started in fashion, didn't you? No, no. Well, I when I first graduated from college, I worked at a um, a black and white processing lab called. Um, uh, McGargy Vanderlyn um, Labs, and it was on a Little West 12th Street in the Meatpacking District. And while I worked there, I met Stephen Klein, who right. uh, the incredible fashion photographer. And um, and essentially, he at one point asked if I could if I would be interested in coming to work for. Actually, his agent um, had asked if I would come and help manage his studio. So that was um, technically my second job out of out of <laughs> university. And, and this was I back in the it. days when the meatpacking industry was actually still packing meat. That's right, exactly. <laughs> there would be huge trucks passing by. They didn't smell very good. That were piled of, you know, all sorts of. Um, flesh remains and um and it was uh it had a, it had a real purpose then it was <laughs> they've all moved off to i think queens it is um but yes i started working in his and actually steven's studio was um was on the corner well it was right there um oh, forgive me uh, the, the name of the street is just it was on Greenwich. I can't. I can't remember exactly what the cross streets were, but it was very close. It was like right. two blocks away from the lab. And, and this um, is long before you know DVF had moved in, right? Yes. <laughs> Into exactly, the neighborhood, made exactly. it chic. The, the transformation <laughs> has been. It's really been quite mm. incredible. And um, so that's that's sort of where I started, and it was a great experience because I was able to. I knew that I wanted to go off and be a photographer of my own but uh, when you first graduate from college you have no money you have you know no contacts you're just building and um, and so I was able to to work and understand a better sense of what the photography world was like and save money at the same time and research what I wanted to do 
what what was it what was it like i mean uh, steve klein was one of the great uh, is one of the great uh, new york photographers i mean mm-hmm. uh, did he have like 50 assistants was it like shooting a movie you know, i hear now these stories of you know the, these big production shoots it, it, it's like a hollywood production oh you know the day to day what i really admire steven for is his uh, dedication you know he is one of the hardest working people i know um, you know, there was he, he has Great Danes, so that was kind of an interesting part of the studio. He would come in with his dogs and they would, you know, kind of take up space because they're big dogs and there's models coming in to be, um, you know, hopefully chosen for the next campaign. And on occasion we would meet, um, you know, a celebrity of some sorts. And it was um, interesting to see people from the magazine world coming in and um, who are very well known in their own right. and. Uh, it was a window into a world that I never would have had uh, experience and um, there are a lot of details you know uh, we were in charge of keeping uh, keeping track of his archive and of course that's super important and um, you know just uh, the assistants were uh, working very closely with Steven and putting together these incredible sets and uh, so it was theatrical in some ways very exciting to to see and at the same time you know we all had our jobs and we were working very hard to keep this machine in motion right and um, whether it was billing or if it was um, you know just appointments or if it was the assistants or the interns or whatever it might have been and, and this is of course still the glory days for those shooting film right rather right. than digital oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> Absolutely, and hand retouching. Right. Yeah. So, um, and I, his eye was extraordinary. Is extraordinary. So it was also for me a great opportunity to see this this artist at work and watching him, you know, edit and watching him, um, you know, sort of add elements to whatever that campaign is and coming up with the ideas for whether it was a story in a magazine or for, for a campaign that he was working on. So, yeah, that was, it was really, so, you know, I was young and it was, it was, it was cool. So how did you manage to get transported then from this glamorous, if not carcass-ridden suburb <laughs> of New York to, to the wilds of Africa and, and uh, I guess, the extent of what was going over there with AIDS and uh, other elements? Well, I, had, I knew that I wanted to be a photojournalist. I knew that that was, uh, you know, I had studied photography, but uh, during my university years, I worked as an aid worker in Romania in an institution which housed, was one of the largest in Romania. And working with these children and seeing that these children had no voice was really what, um, m- that, that, that reinforced my belief that this was something that I wanted to do. I felt that... Uh, I could I could hopefully create a bridge between this incredibly safe comfortable bubble that many of us live in and that we also don't have the opportunity to be able to go and see firsthand what's happening in the world and I felt that I had the courage and I felt that I had the dedication to put myself in those places and that I also felt that uh, these photos could um, both be historic in many ways, you know, that, that, that these images would are, are collective history and, hmm. and that, you know, years into the future, perhaps it would even only be my grandson or my granddaughter, but they would pick up these photos and say, that's what it was like. 
can you believe that this happened or um, you know and learn something about the world and and so you know I just felt like this is how I wanted to this is what I wanted to contribute you know to to the world in some way. Uh, I'm really interested by that that image of voicelessness. Is, is that a big part of, you think, the contribution that f- extreme photography brings to uh, challenged areas in the world? I think it, it, it depends on... Well, yeah, no, I, I, I do. I think that, you know, certainly we don't know exactly uh, what is that voice. What would that person want to say? And that's what I love about the new technology, right. uh, that so much of our... Uh, consumption of news is happening online. It's yes. no longer about this newspaper and seeing a flat image and an interpretation and like an isolated quote or something like this. Now, um, and it's something that I did later on once I really got into my work in Africa dealing with the AIDS pandemic, for example, is that I was able to do recordings with people like we're doing now. Right. And so you could hear the birds and you could, you know, you could hear the voice and there's a texture that you can't just get from a still image. And, um, and that, that's actually something that unfolded as I was doing my work because I felt like I'd go to these places and I would be, um, you know, I'd hear all this incredible singing or this chatter or this talk or this crying or this um, the commotion or whatever it might be, and then I'd come back and I'd look at these very stagnant photos that didn't didn't have that element to it, and it frustrated me. And that's you know I was doing my auditory recordings on like you remember your old answering machine with the oh, tapes. Oh, those tapes, yes. <laughs> the tapes. That's what I was starting with, you know. So there wasn't, like, these fabulous audio recordings back then, but it worked. <laughs> and you could, you know, and, and, and I ended up um, collaborating with an incredible person, uh, Brian Storm, who has uh, a company called Media Storm. Um, and I'm jumping ahead here, but essentially after working on the AIDS pandemic for, for many, many years, I... Um, brought all these my contact sheets and these audio recordings and said Brian you know can you help me he was doing a multimedia um, launching a multimedia uh, newspaper I guess or I don't know what you would call it it's not a newspaper it's a, a, an outlet for information and he was doing shorts and he was doing um, both video and stills and audio together and um, I was introduced to him and he was, he was really the person who breathed life to that project and I, I'm forever in, indebted to him for that. Um, but he, he took this work and sat down and looked through all of the, the contact sheets and listened to the audio and it's it was a difficult task because I didn't take the recordings and the images with the intent of putting it, it was really kind of just snippets from here and there and yet he sewed together um, a beautiful piece that is titled, uh, entitled uh, Bloodline, um, AIDS and Family. So um, if you look at that, you'll get a sense of ha- how we kind of intertwined a lot of the this. The different elements. The different elements <coughs> intended for the web, because this was the new method of distribution. Well, I think it's really interesting because I, uh, in some ways when you read the headlines, you get a sense of the um, factual truth behind the statistics, mm-hmm. but there's no way to bring that to life that there are 50 people dead in an incident unless you see the emotional truth mm-hmm. that images or sound provides mm-hmm. no it's also very easy for people to to shut it out <coughs> you, know? you you have to be receptive there's so many um, there's so many horrible things happening in our world um, you know and, and and I think people make the choice to keep themselves informed or to detach and you know, um, 
I saw a cartoon that said, um, I'm balancing, and I'm hoping I get this right, it's something like, I'm balancing my need to stay informed with my need to stay sane. You know, and that's really kind of something where I, I feel as though um, there's so much happening. And there's, there's a lot of good, but there's also a lot of hmm. horrible things as well. And um, you know, you're dealing with a community that has the choice of how they want to interact many times, you know, um, until, until their comfort zone becomes um, unbalanced and, and challenged, uh, then, then, you know, I think people sometimes can be quite comfortable not, not dealing with um, staying informed and um, seeking out what's happening around the world. It's very much tied to everything, really. So you were telling me a little bit of the story about how you having been inspired by Romania then decided to go to Africa. Mm-hmm. Could, could, you, could you tell me how that happened? Okay. Okay. So, when I, after I graduated from college, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to dedicate myself to. And I knew it was going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. And I, hadn't, I didn't have a grand portfolio that I could bring in and say, okay, hire me. I wanna, I'd like to work for you. And so I had to create this body of work. And at the same time, I was reading, uh, for example, Mark Scoof's uh, series on the AIDS pandemic in Africa, and it really moved me. He won the Pulitzer, actually, in 2000 for this series of work. And, uh, and I thought that this is it. You know, again, here we are. We're living in our very safe bubble in, in New York. And uh, the pandemic had taken its toll, certainly, on, you know, on many... People in our own community, but we were in a time where antiretrovirals were available, and so I felt that that it really just it wasn't fair that we had the, these resources available to us. But at the same time, you could have a mother in Zimbabwe who, um, by no fault of her own, had become perhaps HIV positive, who had become HIV positive, and that was um, giving birth to a child, for example, that that would then could possibly get the virus from her and that she had no way of um, keeping her child healthy and um, and the virus had affected every facet of, of many countries in Africa and I felt like you know when you look at the statistics alone it was absolutely horrific checking millions of people who were affected and uh, and I thought this is this is the story of my time this is the this is something that um, is bigger than anything really that uh, anything else and that I wanted to, to dedicate myself to especially because we had the tools to do something about it. because we had the tools to do something about it and because drugs hadn't been released from their patents and that there was you know there wasn't the funding to do the generic versions of the drugs people were dying yeah. and, it, and and of course there is a very uh, important structure that has to follow people getting antiretrovirals because then you can create versions of the virus that are more resistant the medication doesn't work so it's not just about getting the medication it was also about resources it was about infrastructure but all of that um, really tied into you know the idea that there were communities there were countries that that um, their their population didn't have access to the same kind of medical treatment and um, and that was something that I felt was worth looking at and and that were, were, you, were you prepared for what you encountered though when you when you first arrived? Um, I don't think there's anything that can really prepare you for 
example, going to a neighborhood and finding that every other home had somebody sick or somebody dying from the, from the AIDS virus. And seeing children who were being taken care of by their grandmother who had already buried her own children who had died from AIDS and were then looking after the second generation of children who had been affected perhaps by birth or whatever it might have been and so um, there's a lot of heartache a lot of pain and I feel that my work that I produced is really a um, it's it, 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 it stands as a memorial yeah. to them in some ways I mean I certainly didn't photograph uh, clearly like there's no way of photographing the pandemic unless you zoom in and you deal with the individual. And so that's what this body of work is about. It's about zooming in and, and photographing individuals who are dealing with this and knowing that that individual has a similar story to thousands and thousands of other people. And that when you look at that as a whole, it becomes so, so overwhelming and so painful. And that so many people were basically dying um, without any, um, that it was, you'd go to a village and that it was completely decimated by the virus. And that you'd find that, um, you know, the, the, the history, the language, the, the artists, the, you know, the fiber of that community had been completely torn apart. Uh, I don't know that that is something that, it, it, again, it took me a long time to be able to absorb because you're going door to door. You're meeting with groups of women who perhaps had come together to help support each other um, later on dealing with, you know, hospice organizations that would go out into the field and that would, um, you know, educate people on how to t take care of people with, with HIV because there's a lot of risk also from that. I mean, you're dealing with open wounds and there needed to be, you know, an education and they didn't have the resources. You didn't mm. go. People would perhaps initially go to the hospital for treatment, but when you're dealing with a where with an incurable disease that they didn't have the medication to treat. You would treat the opportunistic disease, um, but if, and they could do that oftentimes, and the person would get well and go home, but if their immune system dropped to a point where that, you know, perhaps tuberculosis, for example, they would die of TB. And so sometimes it would just be a matter of then saying, okay, we've done enough for you now, you need to go home. And then there was a whole educational process for the people taking care of the person at home. Um, and just the emotional trauma of then also seeing, you know, kids watching their parents die at home in very small quarters. And, and that you can't even really imagine the, the emotional toll that that would take on, on young kids. And the the vulnerability and, and you know it's, it's, it's incredibly scary. So I don't know that, that I was ever prepared for it, but I was very honored to have taken been able to to take the time that I did and you know of course gather this information and, and help edu educate others. One of the things that, that does strike me about your images, though, is that they're not just sort of a a stark body count of the suffering over there. There's, there's a sense of the humanity of the people there as well. Sometimes I think hope is might be pushing it a little bit. There is a sense that they still have retained something of their human selves, even in the face of tragedy. Yeah, no, absolutely. But that's just what it is. Hmm. Is that you? You realize that um, that it could be me. It could be you. There's, you know, when you're meeting with right. somebody, it's it's. Um, you're not talking about abstract, right? I mean, yeah. we're talking about people, um, and 
that humanity exists in every single one of us and um, there is a, a strong sense of pride um, from so many of the people that I met and again it's just circumstances of birth mm. that place people in, 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 in a certain place and unfortunately it boils down to education and resources and you know but I appreciate that you see that in the photos because that is very much the intent of it. It's just, again, that, that uh, a lot of my work was environmental portraits. So coming into an environment and you know getting the um, people agreeing to have their photos taken and describing what it is that I'm doing. And well, that's well, I was, also, I was just going to ask about that because yeah. there must be a real art to being uh, present in that moment to capture the reality there. But how do you? How do you stage that? <laughs> well, you, you hopefully don't stage it. It's really about, um, you know, it's about you making sure that people understand, making sure that people understand the reason why you're there. And as a photographer, I didn't have the resources to help everybody that I met with. Right. So, so you actually wanted to forget so you, that you were there, basically. So, well, forget that I'm there, but also um, truly understand that as a photographer, that they can share their story, that I can photograph them, but I can't necessarily help them. And that by telling their story, that they can share with other people mm. what's happening to them. And, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with people who are disadvantaged, um, that they may not feel that they have the power to say yes or no and that you've come and you've spent you've gone on this long journey you've come to their door and um, and just by perhaps feeling as though they're um, weak I mean, certainly people are sick or families would would say sure it's okay but you need to make sure that they really understood what they were offering up uh, you're walking into very intimate environments and you need to be respectful of that and so that's it's it does take some tiptoeing and and uh you know you don't want to rush into any situation and kind of steal images this is about um a collaboration of sorts that you know that, that people are, are t allowing you into their lives uh, well, once you had sort of covered the pandemic of AIDS in Africa, you were also involved in some other hotspots as well, like uh, Haiti and, and even New Orleans after Katrina. Mm -hmm. uh, can you share some of your stories uh, that you experienced there? Okay, let's see. I think one of the one of the areas that really impacted me probably the next after my time in um, the sub-Saharan region of Africa was my time in the Middle East. I worked uh, on... Um, See, I'm not sure exactly. Is it the second Fada um, photographing both in Gaza and the West Bank and in Israel as a whole? So, all oh, right, these are the suicide bombers, right? Yes. Well, yes, exactly. So I I'd, I'd spent time in Gaza. There was one particular story that I did on that that work, which was um, my fixer had introduced me to young boys and girls actually who uh, had a desire to become shahids, which are to become a martyr and and what you realize again is just that you know perhaps that their identity was you know covered their 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 face was covered I would only see people's eyes as I was doing conducting these interviews very much again like we're doing here to try and understand what motivated them and you see that it was just this you know oftentimes a, a, a teenager 
and that he felt perhaps that he had no hope living in an environment where he didn't have his own currency, didn't have his own passport, he didn't have an education, he didn't have, a, didn't believe that he had a future. And seeing so much violence around him that he was willing and feel, felt more that he, would, he was contributing something by doing, uh, committing violence against another human being and, mm. and, and as part of his struggle. And so... None of that's sort of consistent with the traditional notion of evil. Well, that's just it. It's all about their, their mindset and where they are and what they're thinking. And that was my job, was to try and not judge, but to be there as a, um, to record what it is that they were um, feeling and uh, their beliefs and what was going on in their environment and, um, and to bring that back to others so that if people didn't clearly have the opportunity to go to Gaza to meet with these young um, rebels that, you know, I could bring this back to you and say, you know, this is what this is what this age group is mm. thinking. Certainly, very radicalized in their own beliefs, perhaps. Um, and you would hope that you know, instead of, or that you would hope that these these young people would want to go off to university rather than committing, you know, horrible acts of violence and killing themselves, committing suicide for this belief. But um, did you follow up on these people you photographed? Did, did any of them actually go on to? end up doing it? I was back um, I forget exactly how much time had passed between but I had met with um, two brothers I believe it was and one of the brothers had gone through um, sort of the olive groves and approached engaged with the, the IDF and was killed but he didn't do, you know, the thing is, is that even though they may have wanted to perhaps do, you know, I photographed them with uh, explosive vests oh, and wow. things, but the opportunity had, to, you know, they had to basically be able to get out in order to, to do that. So, which is, of course, why ERA's crossing is so um, restrictive in that, you know, only certain people with working permits or things like that, that, you know, they try and control as much as they can to prevent perhaps people who have the intent of doing this or getting this stuff out, so whatever, it might, whatever it might be. So even though there was this fan, you know, this uh, fantasizing about doing an act of violence like that, the real um, area of opportunity, I guess if you want to call it, as far as doing something like that was really against the settlers that were in, um, in the Gaza Strip before they, of course, at that time, the settlements were there. They've now all been withdrawn. So, um, so you know, it was just a matter of, of that was that was certainly for me was most horrifying is to see that you know perhaps they're the older generation. There were many men who were imprisoned or who had been killed, and that you know all throughout Gaza you see you know the, the posters of martyrs, but that to see then the next generation that was also imbued with this. Um, this desire, this hatred um, that they wanted to, and, and to wanted to be able to, to act on something. And one of the girls that I had met had said that she initially had trained to be part of the ambulance service. And, um, you know, again, I'm, you're asking me to jar my memory here, but um, 
she had said that after working in the ambulances and seeing, you know, again, like oftentimes the young boys coming out, throwing rocks and throwing their their Molotov cocktails against these tanks and seeing live fire come back and these boys getting shot in their legs and their abdomens, some of them being killed, um, that that experience, seeing firsthand how her... Um, her brothers and sisters in a way were fighting and that she was like, no, I want to fight more. Like, I really want to be a, a soldier. Um, and that that's what really convinced her that she, if she had an opportunity that she wanted to become a Shaheed. So, um, you know, that was, I think for me, an experience that really stood out as um, this window into a community that uh, under the occupation was so, so desperate. So desperate that people were willing to kill themselves and that, you know, how does that mindset come about? Like, what creates that? Um, and so that was probably one story that I did that was... You know. how, how do you find looking now, I mean, so much of the landscape has changed in that we consume images of crisis very much in real time now through Instagram, mm -hmm. through Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of the mechanisms of traditional war photojournalism mm -hmm. uh, are changing. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do you think now that we have become more desensitized to images or do you think we actually now only think in images? Mm. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. There, it does fascinate me that, and this is different from I guess I should answer your question first. <laughs> if you've got a more interesting question like, to answer, no, you can no, definitely because go there's with like, that. You know, there's, the whole, there's the whole issue of, um, of, of photography and how our, how just by the sheer fact that everybody actually has a camera well, in you're their right. pocket. I mean, you, you show all these oh. images you know, with, with a, a traditional film camera and Tri-X. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, but there's a different way, there is a difference in the way that we think about the world and that our, our, our young people think about the world. Like, not so old, but at the same time, I'm not, you know, the, the fact that they're using every, every moment of their lives, of people's lives, can be documented. In, hmm. And um, one of the things that I, I read a study about is that when you photograph something, that it actually affects your memory of the event and that you remember it less. Um, and I don't know exactly how that works but it's almost as if you're allowing the, the camera to capture for you. And there was a time, you know, the, the bulk of my life was without the instant aspect of having a camera in your pocket. Right, And so, so you couldn't see the image you just shot. Well, we couldn't see the image you just shot, but it also, um, the way, we all say at my age and early 40s that thank God that we didn't have this because I wouldn't have wanted who knows what I would have done with you know having you know these pictures of you know your crazy youth um, and that it's all out there now but when it relates to photojournalism and it, and it ties into uh, another belief and so I think it's all great for me I think it's fantastic I think that ha having a photography as a language in our pocket and being able to use it is a new terrain it's it and it's incredible I, and I love it because it's it's something that I've always had a connection to and I'm thrilled that other people have are, are able to use it in the same way that I've always used it um, but um, and, it, and, it, and that also brings me to a project that I started in not that I started but I that I helped with that I've helped with since the very beginning um, which is a project called through the eyes of children the Rwandan project it was a project started by uh, David Geronic who um, was an amazing man um, from Greenwich, Connecticut, 
who um, he um, he read uh, a book called I Wish to Inform You that tomorrow I will be killed with um, my wife I think and children or something I forget exactly the title forgive me for very catchy title uh, very <laughs> yes, but it's, it's an incredible incredible book uh, and it, it spurred him to go to Rwanda and when he went to Rwanda uh, he met a woman by the name of Rosamund Carr who was another American woman who had lived in Rwanda for um, 60 years and um, when the genocide happened she was one of the first to be flown out but was also one of the first to be flown back in because it was her only home she was friends with Diane Fossey and um, you know had this uh, farm there and the Red Cross had brought her children to to house in her farm in her barn rather and David met her and met the children and realized these children have never had an experience with the camera. They've, uh, they don't even know necessarily what it is, per se. And so he started a shoot-back project with them where he gave children cameras and they were able to photograph their lives with it. And, um, and so it kind of ties into just access to this technology because now, as adults, the project's still going on, 10 years plus, and they, they have... The phones, they have phones, which they're now able to, for the first time in their life, document their environment in a way that living in a village, perhaps it doesn't have electricity or you don't have access to these expensive cameras or to film development or to scanning or whatever it might be. In this day and age, they can people can use their phones. They can photograph something in, you know, a, whatever way they want to, whether it's a documentary fashion or for their family or for their artistic purposes, and you can upload it and you can communicate with people in a way that has shrunk the world um, in a way that I could never have imagined. And it's very exciting for me to, to know that there are people who, um, for us, we've always taken this for granted, but now, you know, it's the way that it's transformed the world on that level, I think is very, very cool. Um, and as, as, as far as photojournalism is concerned, I, you know, I think that it's, um, you know, I think it's also exciting because we're seeing uh, images from events that we perhaps would not have seen because there wasn't a professional photographer there and that you have people who are capturing the real live moments that are historically important and that we have, we have images now from it. So, well, Kristen, it's a very inspiring story. Uh, thank you for being on the show. Okay, thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. <laughs>